Hey everyone, I'm Dominique, one of the production supervisors for the Black and Empowered podcast. While we're gearing up for season two, we want to bring you this interview between Kara Grant, enterprise and investigative writer for MedPage, and our very own Dr. Aisha Metzger, assistant professor at the University of Georgia and licensed clinical psychologist. Join us as they discuss the article on treating ethno-racial trauma with cultural humility how mental health professionals are confronting collective psychological distress. This episode aired on April 26, 2021. Please enjoy the conversation and be sure to visit MedPage and our social media pages at The Empower Lab, at BB Cars, both linked in the description for more. So maybe we can start with um, your background and experience in dealing with ethno-racial trauma and your background seeing in in your clinical practice? Sure. I'll say that my experiences started through working with individuals who experience interpersonal trauma. So I completed my clinical psych internship at the National Crime Victim Center. And at that time, I was working with kiddos and individuals in the community who experienced things like child abuse or witnessing domestic violence, But I was in Charleston, South Carolina at the time that Dylan Roof um, shot up Emmanuel 8. So I was actually one of the responders that worked really closely with the families. And what I started to see at that time is that they were dealing with the interpersonal stressor, right? So the violent loss of a family member, but they were also dealing with these racial stressors. So not trusting the police, not trusting the media, realizing that Dylan Roof did have um, the memorandum and some sort of agenda that was anti-Black and that was political. And during that time, I was working directly with the family, but I also realized that all of my other clients who I was seeing for just other general problems were starting to broach these topics with me in session and were starting to have these conversations about the racial stressors that they were experiencing. So at the time I was a clinician, but I also um, was doing research on racial socialization and conversations that uh, caregivers have with their kiddos to prepare them for biases that they might experience it, that they might experience and to bolster their own racial identity and resilience and ability to cope. So these families, as I realized, they were, you know, in session having these huge sighs of relief of realizing that they could also talk about their racial stressors with me. I was going to my consultation meetings and realizing, wait, why aren't the other clinicians having these conversations? (laughs) They're still being the same client. And through that, um, I started talking to my colleagues at the time, and I found that it was a matter of efficacy. So them not feeling like they could broach the topics, them not feeling like they had the training to deal with and overcome these topics. And when we started exploring how to systematically integrate these topics of race and uh, systemic injustices and our reactions to them and really normalizing and validating clients' experiences, through research, I was able to see, wait, not only are they more engaged in treatment, they're also more likely to complete treatment. They're also seeing more sustained benefits of treatment just by having the conversation of race, whether or not they were the families from the Emanuel 8, or if they were just community members at the time who were still dealing with the same problems. So that's kind of my background where I was doing interpersonal trauma work um, and doing research on racial discrimination and race 
socialization. Um, and then I kind of was very intentional about merging the two so that we could make the treatments that we're doing more appropriate and more validating and more beneficial for black clients in particular. And did you always know that there was a this a name for an official name like ERT, ethno-racial trauma, or did that occur to you kind of like after you started integrating those kinds of practices? No. So in my research, um, what I'll say is that we've always known it was a thing, right? right? The vocabulary and our language around it has changed from post-traumatic slave syndrome to uh, racial stress and trauma to just different conceptualizations that now we are landing on, like you said, ethno-racial trauma or racial trauma. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yes, I'll say that the DSM even still hasn't caught up. Um, Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. You know, I think there's, there's arguments for, you know, not pathologizing it and arguments to pathologize it. I I was curious about what your thoughts were on that. Um, I think that like with cognitive behavioral therapy, I have come to terms with both sides of the argument. I think that overall, the concern for not pathologizing it, I think is another sign of systemic problems that exist, right? So I think the concern is if we pathologize it now, people are going to be seen as having a deficit based on society's problem, right? So we don't want to quote unquote victim blame. But I think that that again is a a symptom of the problem that we have in society in terms of help seeking beliefs, medical mistrust. But when it comes to being able to people, being able to reach people where they're at, I'm a proponent for mental health. I know that if I want to provide community mental health and I want to have a sliding scale and I want to take insurance, then I need to be able to code for something that the DSM recognizes. Mm-hmm. So PTSD works, but I think the more specific we can we can get in saying that yes, we have these post trauma symptoms and they do look a lot like PTSD. However, the catalyst or the inciting stressor or the criterion A event is specific to this person's ethnicity or race as are their outcomes. So I think the more specific we can get, just calling a thing a a thing, right? Mm -hmm. Then we'll be able to systematically look at, okay, this is what hypervigilance looks like in response to a racial trauma, right? This is what negative alterations in our, our thought patterns or our feelings looks like, right? So what is disengaging what does a loss of interest look like for someone who's experienced racial trauma that might be okay i'm only shopping at black owned stores that might be if i'm a student in school i'm not going to extracurricular activities because my classmates are going to microaggress against me or that that might mean that i'm non-compliant in the school system against a teacher who has these implicit biases right so what are our behaviors and how do we validate and normalize those for clients, right? Being able to say, right, it's the thing, racial trauma. And to say also, we know how to treat that. We have concrete, systematic behavioral and cognitive strategies that we know can work, right? We're not calling you crazy. We're not saying it's because of any fault of your own. We're saying that it's a problem with society or these individual interactions that you've had or the violence that you've witnessed in the media, but they have caused these outcomes. What does that look like for you? 
and how can I help you overcome those in a way that's beneficial to your long-term goals or your values or the change that you want to see in society? Yeah, and you mentioned kind of things that people are seeing, and I think this is especially important now. What with I, I also, you know, I've been thinking about this, and you know, there was a lot of conversation on social media about the Derek Chauvin conviction yesterday or two days ago, and um, I guess I don't know. I've I've been thinking about it for the last couple of weeks as the trial has been going on, and you know, it is. It last year it was like traumatizing for anyone, but especially black folks, to watch that happen on video, like and have that video being circulated over and over again. Um, right. But in the last couple of weeks, you've you you've seen like the people that were there having to relive it and re-traumatize themselves and like really like go through the pain of that experience um and then people are watching that process happen as well as you know the video itself as well and i'm i'm curious just over the last year and in context with this current moment what you would like people who might misunderstand other other clinicians um about ethno-racial trauma and why how you can better provide more sensitive care right in this moment right yeah no I think you bring up a really important issue in that we're all being exposed to this vicariously right so we're able to see the very real and direct impact that it had on those individuals who were at the scene at the time but we're also starting to see the very real and vicarious impact that it's having on those of us who are having to witness this. Those of us who are logging on to social media to escape, but then are suddenly faced with a reminder about a tragedy that was unfortunate, unjust, and could also happen to them. Mm-hmm. Right? So we about anxiety and we think about hypervigilance we think about even ruminating that we do um, in response to these triggers that sometimes we can't avoid and I think for um, clinicians one of the main things that they can do is just to open the room for that conversation and just to say like you just said right I've been seeing this and it's been impacting me and I cannot imagine how it's impacting you I want to let you know that we're practicing cognitive behavioral things like setting boundaries, like knowing where where your safe places are. I want to let you know that if you want to set a boundary and you don't want to talk about it, you can do that. But if this is a place that you would like to have that conversation, I'm open to having that conversation and to hearing your thoughts and your feelings and to talk about any strategies that we can come up with to overcome those. And that allows people to say, oh, my goodness, I I might not even have known it was impacting me, but let me tell you how frustrating it is for me to log on to social media and have to argue with someone who I thought was my friend who's somehow on the side of injustice, right? And then talking Mm -hmm. to people about, "It's it's not wrong to set a boundary in that regard, too. You can disengage from an argument on social media. You can unplug from social media altogether if you know there's a verdict coming down today. You can 
limit your views and mute certain hashtags and you can only converse with like-minded individuals and stick to your quote-unquote close friends on Instagram because they have those filters now. So these are concrete strategies where if someone says I'm in an emotionally abusive or physically abusive relationship, we'll safety plan with them as therapists. Mm-hmm. We also need safety plan with individuals about, okay, the verdict is coming down. They're setting up barriers and barricades in Minnesota. What are you doing in your personal life to protect your psychological and mental health? Yeah. Right. So be able to safety plan our clients, but also with clinicians of color, right? Mm-hmm. So how me as a clinician who's having to have this conversation over and over and what am I doing in consultation to make sure that I'm taking care of myself and that my colleagues are taking care of themselves as well. So just really making sure that we as a community, if we agree, right, that we see an injustice, that we see something that we want to change, how are we protecting ourselves and restoring ourselves and coming together with each other who want to do the same work so that we can come up with strategies to petition when necessary protest when necessary, try to dismantle a system or restructure policing, right? All of that can only happen when we're restored and rested and refreshed and able to to do the work. Right. And this article that, um, you know, sparked my interest in wanting to write about this discusses, I don't know if you've heard of the term cultural humility. Yeah. Um, So that's kind of what it what the researchers see as a bright spot and a place for innovation. It's kind of what, you know, you were describing where it's like meeting people where they're at and also like recognizing and understanding the biases that we all have. Um, So I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts on if you've, you know, what your familiarity is with that term and that practice and if you've seen it implemented and, and how so? Yeah, I think when people typically refer to cultural humility, they're thinking about, okay, how does a white clinician say that I'm a white clinician and I want to acknowledge my biases and my barriers um, or my biases and how they can present as barriers to my clients? I think that even for me, a black clinician who's talking about black issues and anti-black racism and black empowerment, I also have to utilize cultural humility to say, I'm only the expert in a very, very limited area. Mm -hmm. I'm not the expert in anyone's personal experience. So being humble in that regard and saying, I'm entering this space as a novice in your experience. How can you let me understand what it is that you're experiencing so that whatever my expertise is, we're able to apply. I think that the more we as quote-unquote experts are able to kind of re-identify ourselves as advocates or allies or as someone who is in a constant state of knowledge-seeking and growth is really important. I think the other, the other side of that coin is to say, right, I've achieve some state of ultimate knowledge and now I'm the expert and I know right exactly how to have these conversations and I think the more we're able to just say listen this is hard for me too what are your experiences what is your quote-unquote culture okay so what are your perceptions of the world what are your interactions um, and how can that inform 
our interactions? How can that inform the strategies that we want to to utilize together, right? Or that I can help you utilize with your friends and your community towards that change. But absolutely, I buy into um, the utilization of cultural humility as a way of approaching ethnic minority clients or minoritized clients, I should say. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious if you can recall any like specific anecdote or situation that you have run a, have come across in your life or your practice where you're, where cultural humility and the acknowledgement of the seriousness of ethno-racial trauma could have been extremely or was really beneficial in a specific instance. Anecdotally, I could say, I, so I'm also a consultant um, and I do training on overcoming racial trauma with our clients and mm-hmm. how students can broach conversations about race with clients. And I think one really funny example that I can think of is that a clinician was working on outreach. So she was going into a client's home to provide services following some act of community violence. This clinician, when we were talking about racial socialization, was asking me about extended family involvement. And she was saying that she's been talking to the caregiver about who in their family can help with childcare, who in their family can help provide tangible support in terms of driving to this neighborhood protest that the the teenager wanted to go to. And this clinician was doing a lot of work with this family and just understanding and, and asking questions to better understand. So who are your friends? What sorts of things are you interested in? What sorts of strengths do you have? Um, tell me about your neighborhood. Tell me about your experiences. So really just being curious, right? So not assuming that they were the expert, not assuming that behavioral activation needs to look like taking a walk in the evening. But really talking to the team in this case about behavioral activation. And again, they were thinking about ways to go to a community protest and using extended family involvement. And at one point, the team um, called the clinician their white mama. (laughs) And the clinician uh, was offended. And the clinician was saying, uh, you know, I'm coming into their house. I am trying to be, you know, ingrained as a part of their family. I don't want to just be seen as a white person. And I had to tell that clinician, no, 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 you've made it. (laughs) Right. So they have now brought you into their family. So all the values of what happens in the family stays in the family. Now they're considering you the family. So you're in on secrets. Right. So you're in on anything that otherwise other clinicians wouldn't be in on. So to call you her white mama is just to what we want to do by celebrating diversity, but also bring you into that family. Um, And I think that that's an opportunity. And it was an opportunity then for the clinician to, you know, have a running joke with this client, to bond with this client, to have a deeper relationship with them that otherwise, if she was, you know, the expert, right, in cosmic cognitive behavioral therapy, or she was not practicing or utilizing cultural humility in the way that she was asking about their race and about their interests and really showing the client that she was invested in her as an individual, she wouldn't have approached those those topics. She wouldn't have perhaps come up with behavioral activation strategies that this client even used, right? Mm-hmm. So just 
I think that's a really, it's a cute example, it's a fun example, but it's one that really shows in the long run, right? This is a client who might not have been coming to therapy um, six weeks later, but she found her white mama and she bonded with her. Um, And I think that that's a really good example of how not any expertise, just saying lifelong learner, saying I want to learn about you and being humble about our preconceptions and maybe even our implicit biases, um, allows us to really engage with our clients. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, it sounds like that clinician was practicing cultural humility in all the ways, but but kind of accepting and, um, you know, it's like she's white and that's just a fact. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it's something to be acknowledged and, you know, and so, to call out. Yeah, call yeah. Even me as a white therapist. But also if they say something that you're unsure about, being open and flexible enough to say, okay, white mama, like, what is this? Am I in the family? Am I out of the family? <laughs> oh, how should I take this? And the client can then be like, girl, what you mean? I'm, I'm telling you, you wanted a family now, right? So just opening the conversation, letting down those pretenses, right, that say I'm the expert or I've achieved this ultimate knowledge, Um that would otherwise prevent, like, some therapists say, I don't, I'm doing outreach, but I'm not eating at my client's house. And mm-hmm. clients are saying, well, you're not family if you come over here at 6 p.m. to do outreach and you're not going to take a piece of this meal, right? So just different things like that that we can think about in terms of what what do we know about ethics, right? What are the lines that we draw personally um, that can allow us to better connect with our clients and better get to know our clients and their experiences, yeah, absolutely. Is there any, I don't know, this is just something I've been thinking about and kind of is outside the scope of this story, but is there any um, situation where you feel like, I believe that a white clinician cannot do this job for this person because of whatever differences? And or is cultural humility a door to, like, you know, bridge that gap completely? You asked an either-or question, but the answer is going to be yes. Okay. <laughs> so, yes, cultural humility, I think, is the way to broach that gap. I think it's the way to call out the elephant in the room and then to start addressing that elephant. Um, so I always ask clinicians, right, how do you eat an elephant? And they'll laugh and they'll say, one bite at a time. So it's not that a white clinician wouldn't be able to have this conversation, but it's that unless they do, unless they're the ones to broke the, the topic, it's more likely that the client is going to unengage. So I said yes, because that's not the only answer. So there are some times when there are clients that are hypervigilant, that are experiencing system mistrust that um, have preconceived notions that or previous experiences that preclude them from having that conversation with the white clinician. So just like in some cases, right, if a a young woman experienced sexual assault by a a man, we might say that they're going to receive a, a woman clinician. Right. I might have a preference for a woman clinician. It could be that if someone is experiencing racial trauma or the symptoms of racial trauma, um, and they had a preference for a like race or similar ethnic clinician, that if available, 
I would say it would be best practice in this case to provide that clinician. So ethnic matching is a thing. I don't think it's necessary, but I do think that right, all things working equally in a system where we have enough black providers, um, <laughs> right, that of, of course it, it works. But that in the current state of the system that we're at, where there are just disproportionate rates of even ethnic minority providers, um, that cultural humility is one way to overcome those barriers. Yeah. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you feel like is really important to address, you know, if it's about, you know, the current moment or just about this topic in general? Um, one thing I think is really important that is kind of the direction my research is heading is to think about not only the clinical population, but also think about our community population and how they're being impacted by racial stressors as well. So we know that, right, those who engage in trauma treatment or those who engage in cognitive behavioral therapy are just the tip of the iceberg. But there's a whole other subset of the population who are experiencing these vicarious, very direct stressors and in need of some sort of support. Most of them we, we know are getting that support from their families, from their friends, and from the community around them. But I do think it's important to emphasize the need for us as researchers and as practitioners, as policymakers, to consider the community-based approach to treating racial stress and trauma, to consider a public health approach to treating racial stress and trauma. So just to make it just as common as we know that sexual abuse and domestic violence is bad, we also need to know that racial trauma is real and that it hurts. So having that language around, having policies around racism, having um, trainings around racism for onboarding staff, right? So just thinking about the, the general community and how we can treat and target racial stress and racial trauma with those who aren't in standard face-to-face treatments. So kind of the general community, you're, you mean like those that either don't have access to treatment or just because of like cultural stigma or whatever it is they don't have time um that they don't who are who have some symptoms of racial trauma but maybe don't meet full criteria right so those who are just walking around day-to-day lives in the community and being um, exposed to racial stressors also could benefit from just knowing additional coping skills, seeing messaging around. So like right now it's coronavirus and we're seeing messaging around washing your hands and wearing your mask. Also seeing messages that say unplug and process, practice safe care, racial trauma hurts, right? So just messaging that reminds people um, just as frequently as we're seeing messaging about black death messaging that reminds us of how to cope and to heal. My lab just rolled out a public health messaging campaign and there was an anti-Asian hate rally where people in the community were holding up our racism hurts signs. On social media, you're able to see people spreading the message around the impact and what 
maladaptive outcomes look like in response to racial trauma, but also how we can take that and now say, okay, we're moving towards healing. We're moving towards change. What does that look like? And just spreading the word, right? spreading awareness, I think is one thing that we can do in addition to the therapeutic approaches that we're taking. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time and talking to me about this. Yeah, I really, really appreciate it. This was a pleasure. I appreciate your work. Hopefully um, more people will get to read about racial stress and trauma. Hopefully therapists will hear about different strategies and researchers think about what they can do to take part in the fight against it as well. Yeah, definitely. And um, once it goes live, I'll, I'll send it your way. And I'd love to hear any, any thoughts you have. Excellent. I will post it on our social media. Okay, and cool. I- Awesome. Thanks so much, Cara. Thank you. Have a good one. Thanks for joining this week's special episode. Next time on Black and Empowered, we'll bring you a fun little kiki with your regular show hosts, Brianna and Letitia. See you then.